Welcome to Appointed. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to join you from the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek. So I'm very pleased to be joined today by the incredible Justice Harry Laforme, who is the first appellate court judge in Canada, who is of First Nations heritage. He is a member of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation, a graduate of Osgoode Hall Law School. He was also uh, served as commissioner of the um, what was then called the Indian Commission of Ontario, as well as the chair of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Land Claims. And uh, also the first commissioner of the residential Indian Residential Schools Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And you just, in addition to having honorary doctorates and all kinds of awards, you have just been appointed by the Minister of Justice to head up uh, the process to develop a new conviction review uh, initiative process body. I'm not sure yeah. what um, in terms of your exactly your mandate you've been provided, but I know that you in charge will mean it will be a much fairer, um, more accessible, in particular for women and Indigenous people than the current process has been to date. Uh, but today we're here to talk uh, about mandatory minimum penalties and the particular impact they have on Indigenous peoples mm -hmm. and the bill that the government introduced, which they have indicated will result in the reductions of Indigenous and Black prisoners in particular, and yet have not been able to provide any evidence of how that will happen. Now, I know you have, this has been a concern for many, many years. I think the first time I heard you speak about this was at a judicial education seminar that, in fact, I think you were instrumental in having me be part of when I was still with the Elizabeth Fry Society. So yeah. um, what do you see as a, a way that we could be moving forward in these areas? Well, and thank you for joining us. today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, can I call you Kim? Yes, of course. Okay. Um, you're right. I have, I, I have been interested in this subject for a long time. I'm, I, I guess partly because I'm not a firm believer in, in, in imprisonment doing um, all the wonderful things we, we um, believe it does. Um, and I, I think there's probably better ways. In, in terms of the, the, the reduction of Indigenous and Black offenders, and I can speak to Indigenous uh, because I, I try to keep current on that whole issue of the incarceration of Indigenous people in our institutions, our penal institutions. Um, I know that there's, a, there's, a, there's thinking that a reduction of mandatory minimums um, and reducing the number of those in the criminal code um, will have the effect of reducing the incarceration rate of Indigenous people, which is utterly shameful. Uh, I mean, we have um, Indigenous people, and I think we're talking about all Indigenous people, Inuit, Métis, and uh, First Nations people, make up just under 5% of the population. It grows every year. And I know um, that for Indigenous people, the First Nations people, I think we're talking less than 
3%, maybe even 2% of the population. And that's what um, I sort of focused on. But I remember back in 1999 when the Supreme Court of Canada first released the Gladue decision on how sentencing in, was not working for Indigenous people. That, that is, going to prison doesn't really change anything. It doesn't impact Indigenous people the way it, it's, I think, intended to um, impact non-Indigenous people. And in fact, at the time, there were sentencing um, recommendations and sentencing initiatives that had the whole uh, notion of uh, conditional sentences and people serving sentences outside of um, prisons. And what was really interesting about it, and there was a, a, a lot of um, different areas where you could apply conditional sentences. And over the years since 1999, that's, that's been reduced dramatically. And I think this bill uh, is, is in that same vein and is tended in that same direction. But I will say this, in 1999, when conditional sentences were throughout the criminal code and for a variety of offenses, um, it had the effect of actually reducing the um, inmate population in our, our, our federal institutions and in our uh, uh, provincial ones as well, except for indigenous people. Um, I think at the time Gladue was released, the indigenous population, which was then measured against being somewhat less than 3% of the population of Canada, we represented 17% of the um, inmate population in prisons. Um, women, it was always considerably higher. I think it was over 20%. And then young offenders was, was even higher still. It, that increased, whereas, the, as I re recall from the conditional sentencing and the mandatory minimums or whatever they call them, um, had the effect of reducing the population considerably of inmates, except for indigenous people, which went up. Mm -hmm. And it's gone up steadily since. Um, and every effort they use to um, address the whole uh, inmate population was probably at its peak in, in the um, late 90s and into the early 2000s because of conditional sentences. And uh, there were a lot fewer mandatory minimum sentences. And uh, it did have the result that I think um, members of parliament or those that know these issues of reducing inmate populations, um, prison populations, except for indigenous people. They just kept going up and up and up. Whereas mm -hmm. I think today you have probably around 30% of uh, inmate populations in men's institutions um, are made up of indigenous people, roughly 30%. It's almost, I think, 45% for women. That's correct. And it's even higher again for um, young offenders, indigenous. So I'm not optimistic that the, the approach to this is necessarily less mandatory minimums. There, there was 
you know, virtually none back in 1999 when Gladue first came out and in years subsequent to that. And the indigenous population and inmate population kept increasing. Mm -hmm. Well, that I think that's a, a really important point that, yes, all of these measures, including the changes to the Youth Criminal Justice Act, which uh, cut in half the number of young people in custody, but the number that was that went down the least was Indigenous girls. And in fact, I, yeah. you know, a, a sentencing that I was uh, working on uh, with some mutual colleagues and friends of ours uh, just recently, I found out it, while I was working on that, that 98% of the young yeah. women and girls in juvenile custody were Indigenous. I mean, it's yeah. a horrific reality. And Was that nationwide or was that just in a given province? That was in Saskatchewan, um, yeah. but it, it saw Saskatchewan, the North and yeah. Manitoba all are always over 90% for young women and girls. Well, and even even at that period I was talking about, Kim, in the, um, uh, later on in the 90s, the, the inmate population of men in, mm -hmm. in penal institutions in those provinces, in those areas, was up around 80%, yeah. even back then. So, mm -hmm. And that's with less um, incarceration or initiatives with conditional sentencing being available in more places and with less mandatory minimums. And mm -hmm. th those were still um, places where the indigenous population in prison was, was just massive. It was called by the, by, by the Supreme Court back in 1999 with Gladue, a crisis in the criminal justice system in Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's been call, called other things. I think uh, um, Ipeely, which was uh, a decision on the same issue, I think about 12 years later than Gladue, um, called it something else. I, I just forget what it was, but it was, it seemed to be greater than crisis in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And I know the ombuds person for criminal um, observations uh, called it something else. It's just, it, it just keeps increasing and increasing. It's, it's beyond crisis. Right. Well, and I think that's exactly right. And you, you raise a really important point that um even if Bill C-22 mm -hmm. did uh, provide all, you know, provide judges with discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties of any sort in appropriate circumstances, we would still be dealing with yeah. the issues of, you know, misogyny, sexism, um, you know, the racism mm -hmm. that exists within the system. And so it's, it's in large part why many of us, and I know you and many of the folks you work with as well included have talked about and TRC made recommendations around having to actually address the underlying inequities that put mm. people at greater likelihood of being marginalized, victimized, criminalized, and institutionalized, particularly in prisons. Yeah. And so I, you know, I think, you know, I'm working on things like guaranteed livable income and, uh, you know, a more robust healthcare system, housing, 
um, food security, as well as, you know, obviously clean drinking water and the communities wow. that by this year, there were supposed to be no more boil water advisories in, in First Nations communities, but we know we haven't achieved that yet. And so what are the ways that you see we could be moving forward to really address this? And, and are there ways we could fix Bill C-22 um, in the interim as we're working towards those bigger strategies? Well, there's, there's a lot to unpack in that, uh, Kim. Um, first of all, I, I should point out uh, on that um, boil water advisory, I'm part of a, um, a legal team uh, with my law firm of Ophius Clear Townsend called OKT, who mm -hmm. only represent in, indigenous um, clients. And McCarthy Tetro, who are kind of the experts in um, class actions. We, we are part of a a team of lawyers that are, have, um, um, are pursuing a class action for the whole water issue, the clean water on reserves issue. And our first, I think our first court appearance is in October for one of the main legal issues in the case. So I just thought I'd throw that out there that th these are very, very serious issues. Um, the, the one thing I would say about um, I'm, I'm going to go back to Gladue because I think a lot of the answers were, were thought about in Gladue because one of the most interesting things about that case and followed up later on by that case of Ipeli that I mentioned, another Supreme Court of Canada case, one of the things that it does is it's, it's an unusual decision in the sense that it talks about the history of Indigenous people, that they're position in Canada is not the same as everyone else's. Their trauma comes from a completely different source than most offenders, um, but it includes what most offenders have, but, but it's exacerbated tremendously by the, the, the colonialism of Canada, their place in Canadian history, the residential schools, the 60s scoop, all of those things. And the total control of their lives by um, um, the Department of Indian Affairs and or the federal government. I mean, that's what the Indian Act is all about and subsequent legislation. That's all about controlling the lives of indigenous people, First Nations people from, from the time they're born um, to the time they die. Uh, I'm still uh, what's called a status Indian. I've got a, I've got a band number and a, a status card that's issued by the Department of Indian Affairs, Indigenous Affairs now, that tells me that I belong to a First Nation on a reserve and that the minister can still do certain things without my consent. For example, if, if I die um, uh, and the minister, for whatever reason, decides that my will um, um, isn't very good and it doesn't properly uh, respect all the people that follow me or whatever, can literally take control over my estate. And, and I'm a, I was a judge on the Ontario Court of Appeal. And yet mm -hmm. the minister can take over the administration of my estate, even in the face of a, a, of a will. I mean, th that still exists, that, that whole um, paternalism of the federal government or indigenous people, which gives rise to a lot of this trauma that we're trying to address and the reasons for indigenous 
over-incarceration in prisons, and, um, all of those things that, that have happened to us throughout history since Confederation and actually before Confederation. The, the Supreme Court talked about that in, in Gladue and said, you know, just putting indigenous people in jail doesn't work. Mm -hmm. That isn't the answer. And it said, we gave us a legal responsibility, judges, lawyers, and other institutions. It, while it can't enforce those rulings on other institutions, it said, this is only a small part of what can be done to remedy some of those uh, trauma-induced experiences of indigenous people in their lives and why they are at the lower end of every economic and social scale that you measure a people's place in Canada by, we're, we're the lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and it's all because of that. The Supreme Court pointed that out and said, therefore, what we have got to do as a country is take a different approach. So Gladue is not about reducing an indigenous person's sentence an indigenous offender sentence. It's more than that. It says, you've got to judges and lawyers come up with solutions other than imprisonment because it doesn't work. And mm -hmm. since 1999, uh, since Gladue first came out, we've failed miserably at it. Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you, we, when you're thinking about how to make mandatory minimums, for example, real, I, I, I can assure you that indigenous people are not thought of when they do that, because if they did think about that, they would understand that the Supreme Court says, first of all, whether it's mandatory minimum or not, prison doesn't work, mm -hmm. or that we've got this tremendous over-incarceration by indigenous people, so maybe we shouldn't increase that potential. We should try to fix it. And trying to fix it means doing what the Supreme Court said, which is find alternatives to imprisonment. And we've never done that. Mm -hmm. Well, and as you and I have spoken about in, in other fora, it also means, I think, not, not looking to the criminal legal system to fix all of the inequities um, and systemic inequalities that exist in other places, you know, in the healthcare, in the social system, in the education system. And for me, Gladue, um, and then more recently, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and yeah. Girls Inquiry reminds us as well, that even though the Supreme Court of Canada made some really important statements like the ones you've just mentioned, um, the most law students, and I routinely ask this when I meet with law students, what do they know about the facts of the Gladue decision? And, you know, lots of lots of uh, folks, you know, think of it as a jealous wife who stabbed her um, husband because he was having an affair. Well, Jamie Gladue was 19, pregnant with second child from Reuben Beaver, mm -hmm. who was incredibly abusive. And the night that she stabbed him, he had first beat her up, said he was going to find someone and used pretty horrible language to describe what he wanted to do, so a new sexual partner, went next door, broke in through the window of her sister where her sister was sleeping because her father had moved um, her younger siblings to the, the Reuben mm -hmm. Beaver had moved her away from Calgary where her home was 
and moved her to Nanaimo. Um, and then her father and younger siblings followed because her father was so concerned for Jamie's safety. Um, and so they lived next door. He broke into through the window, the bedroom window to where her sister was sleeping, raped her sister, then came back, assaulted Jamie again. Then when Jamie stabbed him, he was trying to get back into the front door of the unit where her father and her younger siblings lived. Now, to me, that, that sounds like at the very least defense of other and possibly self-defense. And yet it, it was the sexism and the racism and the lack of taking seriously violence against women. And in my opinion, yeah. you know, more importantly, violence against Indigenous women that led for that whole decision to also be skewed in a way that didn't recognize the incredible, uh, incredibly vulnerable position that uh, Indigenous women face. And, and as you and I have talked about the number of Indigenous women, and I know your firm is involved in some of these cases as well, yeah. where women are criminalized in situations where they first have essentially been deputized to protect themselves against the violence they experience. Yeah. And then when they act to protect themselves, the system, the system that hasn't protected them um, over polices, but under protects, swoops in and then criminalizes them and imprisons them. And many of them plead guilty because yes. they feel they're responsible for a death. So they well, take responsibility, even if they have a legal defense. Not, not only that, uh, Kim, the, the difficulty that we face, like when, when you start talking about these statistics and criminal statistics and rates of conviction and everything, they're all skewed by the approach that's taken to um, Indigenous offenders. In I'm talking about particularly in, in um, suburban areas or uh, the um, remote areas where the reserves are um, in the north, for example. And um, what, what happens there is that instead of getting a, a break and enter charge, you, you get everything that goes along with it, break and enter with a mask on, break and enter with a weapon. And, mm -hmm. and you get this string of offenses, which we know, we know categorically, and we know is true that whatever shame is supposed to come about as a result of having a criminal record, it doesn't matter to indigenous people who live lives of hopelessness, and, and um, who have never really had any control over their lives. I, I, I know that sounds like I'm being strident and maybe overstating things, but those are true. I grew up on a reserve where I used to watch the Indian agent come in and take over the community. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that stuff is very true. And you, you, don't, you don't wear a scarlet letter because you go to prison under the, in, in Canada. I mean, it doesn't have that effect. It doesn't work. And that's what people should appreciate. It doesn't work. And all of those things you describe, I don't know if you know it or not, but um, Cindy didn't, her sentence didn't change as a result of that, that written decision of Gladue. Um, she was sentenced and it, it remained the same. It didn't help her at all mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day. Um, and I mean, you know, you look at this stuff and you think to yourself, how come people don't appreciate this? Like the, um, I've seen this in, in Canada throughout. You talked about um, people that don't know about Cindy Gladue's background or what Gladue is all about. Um, it's not just 
students that don't know what Gladue is all about. I wrote a decision while I was on the Court of Appeal in between Ipeli and um, Gladue, and it was called Kekagamic. Mm. And it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. It was a, a, a classic Gladue case. Um, and people ask me, like I was asked to go around to various bench and bar associations for your listeners. The bench means it's a lawyers and judges get together and have a conference. And in any case, and to talk about it. And one of the things that I was really struck by was how little anybody really knew what Gladue was all about or what it said or anything like that. Because I don't know whether it's because judges and lawyers are really busy, but nobody reads the cases thoroughly. They find a a sentence or a paragraph in a case and that's what they rely on. That's what they refer to over and over again. The rest of the case doesn't seem to matter. And and that's part of the problem, unless you understand the rationale. So what, what that results in is lawyers walking into courts with judges and thinking that the whole sentencing principle of Gladue is because Indigenous people have, as First Nations people especially, have lived these horrific lives under colonialism, we should reduce their sentence. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's used as some kind of mitigating factor for um, Indigenous offenders. And it's not about that at all. And, and, and that's, if you don't read the case, then you won't know what it's really about. And mm-hmm. it, what it's really about is change. Let's stop throwing First Nations people in jail um, it doesn't work. Let's find another way to, um, and maybe get back into a little more of a process that um, Indigenous people will respect. That includes their community, includes their, their culture and beliefs, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's just never happened. And I'm not even sure it's been attempted. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, just to bring in C22 again, the one of the challenges is, if uh, Jamie Gladue came before the courts now, she wouldn't even have, I mean, she would have faced a mandatory minimum because she, like so many women who, uh, because the law, as you know, the law of self-defense was built around how men, particularly white men, yeah. fight um, in barroom brawls and old style duels and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, women often grab something because if they engage in hand-to-hand combat, they usually end up dead. Yeah. And so uh, she grabbed a knife and now that would bring her a mandatory minimum penalty. So we wouldn't even have had the Gladue decision yeah. if, uh, J- if that what happened to Jamie happened now. So Well, I'm not sure Gladue helps her even today. No, no that's true. That's true. So what... Um, and- And part of the problem, um, Kim, is that when we start talking about mandatory minimums or however many they are, um, I I don't know a lot of judges who actually like that. Um, You know, mandatory minimums, I know it it, it feels good for lawmakers and whatnot, but I spent 25 years on the bench, Kim. Um, I've done every kind of trial you can imagine. I spent 11 years as a trial judge. And a lot of that was doing homicides and, and murder trials where, with juries. And um, so I'm aware of sentencing. And I did experienced that again and addressed a lot of those issues when I was on the Court of Appeal. 
And one of the things that gets lost is one of the first rules of sentencing that I ever heard, which was when you're in a criminal trial, when you judge the innocence or guilt of a person for a particular offense, you sentence both the offender and the offense. In other words, you take the circumstances, first time offender gets leniency because invariably that person is just somebody, bad experience, wrong place, wrong time, and is not really a criminal, just committed a criminal offense. You can't do anything with that person except give them the mandatory minimum. That takes all of that um, responsibility that judges, I always thought, uh, preferred was who is my offender here? Are there circumstances which this person deserves some mercy for lack of a better term, or maybe the best term is justice um, for the offense that they committed, wrong place, wrong time, you're pretty satisfied this person isn't going to do it again and sentence them that way. Because usually as a trial judge, the people that we experience in our courtroom, the vast majority of them are first time offenders. Maybe alcohol is an issue. Maybe drugs are an issue. Who knows? All kinds of issues come into play. And this person who was a law abiding citizen for um, their lives, all of a sudden finds themselves committing a horrendous crime. And do you get to sentence the offender and the offense? No. You don't take you, you don't get any any of those factors and in, come into play. And so it has the effect of actually creating criminal records for people who don't need criminal records or sending them to prison where a place they can learn to be a criminal better. Mm-hmm. Well it, and it doesn't so- work. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, you don't. And that's okay, because I, I start babbling. And No, no, no. I, uh, it, you know, it's, that reminds me that, um, you know, one of the things that um, frustrated me when I first was in this job, one of the first pieces, well, one of the early pieces of legislation we looked at, well, two things. We were finishing off a report on delays in the criminal legal system, and we haven't seen the Law uh, Commission recon you know, started no. up again, even though it's, it's still on the books. And many of us saw that the, the, the issues of delay in the criminal legal system mm-hmm. were, la- were related to all of these issues. And then the next, one of the next bills we were dealing with was the bill that introduced deferred prosecution agreements for corporations. And I remember just sitting there thinking, have I just landed on another planet where, yeah. you know, we have deferred prosecution agreements for corporations yeah. to where they admit criminal liability and then if they can show that they have a plan to how and remedy you know remedy it or as best possible reduce the harm then basically they're not prosecuted why don't we have i mean we have diversionary approaches I but know. we don't have anything like that for people and it strikes me that would be a much wiser approach than even bill c22 taking out you know less fewer than half of the mandatory minimum penalties that have been deemed unconstitutional by different courts and not really making a robust um you know but it isn't a thought out process kim you know to reduce the mandatory minimums you reduce the number of them it's it's not like there is some kind of great rationale for doing this that's considered that's not what it is it's 
because judges are saying, you know, this this doesn't pass muster under our constitution or whatever. Um, they're making that. So you're almost forced to reduce the number of mandatory minimums. It's not because somebody sat down and said, is this good for our justice system? And is it good for, you, you know, I, 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 I've, I've had a lot of issues that I've addressed lately that um, I find are in conflict with what this government says is the, the number one priority or the number one issue in Canada, which is the reconciliation of indigenous people and their rightful place in Canada. And yet I see all these things that take place that don't consider that for a second. Mm -hmm. You know, like these mandatory minimums, who, who, who is going to benefit from that? It's certainly not indigenous or black offenders because they live in environments that provide little hope for any improvement. And when mm -hmm. you live in that kind of an environment, you're the person that is going to hit, get hit worse by these kinds of, of um, penal sanctions. I mean, black and indigenous people are gonna suffer the most by any, and everybody knows this, by a mandatory minimum sentence. It, it's worse for them. They are going to prison. Yeah. And, it's, and, it, and, and it shocks me sometimes because I keep hearing, and I'm 74 years old, and I spent 25 years on the bench, and I keep hearing how indigenous people are the number one priority, the number one concern for Canada. And it's, that's its mission. It's reconciliation with indigenous people. Just like, oh yeah, we're gonna get rid of racism and black lives matter down in the South. I guess the, the words sound so easy and, but to some people they are important. Some people, they are life-changing, those words, if you mean them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way with the, the incarceration rates. I mean, I, I, I hate looking every year because they went from 17%, which was a crisis in, in Canada back in 1999, to, to 2001, where it's not 17% anymore. It's 30% yeah. of the inmate populations are men, Indigenous men. I mean, yeah. that has to tell you something. Yeah. So what else could we be doing and what, what are some of the things you're, you've spent your lifetime doing this work? Um, what are some of the things you hope that me and um, others pick up and keep pushing well, that, that could make a difference? Well, I, I, I think we could look at other jurisdictions, for example, and I know we've done that and the Law Commission has done that and other, but can, maybe we should look at them uh, with a serious intent. Um, mm -hmm. There, there, there is things like that. Like, um, and the other, the other part that I have been waiting since 1999 for is the pilot projects that, that factor in Gladue and what it's telling us to do. I mean, if, if we were just criminals and didn't respond to Gladue, the principles of the Supreme Court of Canada, we'd be in trouble because that's, you know, that's our, that's our highest court in the land. And if they tell you to do something, you're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and they've told us since 1999, find another way to um, address indigenous offenders. Find another way. Imprisonment doesn't work. We haven't even looked, as far as I know, for another way. 
for some reason or other, we in our society think crime equals a trial if a finding of guilt, how many years in prison? That's our narrow thinking about that. And we've got to get over that. We've got to start thinking outside the box. We've got to look for alternatives. And it's our government's responsibility to find those alternatives, to search them out. We, we can try pilot projects in communities up north and, and, and in different parts of Canada. We, we just haven't bothered. And I bet you there's people looking for it. I often thought how, how what, a, what a grand thing it would be to take somebody like Jonathan Rudin, who um, you know, runs the, the what are they, what's his organization? Aboriginal called? Legal Services. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's somebody, a, a guy like Kent Roach, who has, I mean, has such creative thoughts about criminal law and offenders, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and others, you know, somebody like myself, for example, and sit down and say, what, what can a program like uh, an alternative to imprisonment look like in, in a Northern community where the community trusts you and respects you and says, here's what we can do. You know, we've had law reform commissions that have told us other things mm -hmm. that we can do. We did try it at one time, but for some reason or other, it didn't work. Conditional sentencing worked. It, it, the crime didn't increase. Less incarceration, I think it was reduced by something like 20% for crying out loud in the time that, that I was deciding my case in Kakagamic. And yet indigenous offenders were going up in terms of incarceration rates, going up while everybody else was going down. So it, it can work, the conditional sentencing and models based on that, that can be put in place in these communities can reduce sentencing. Not every crime deserves to make somebody a criminal. Mm -hmm. Well, I can hardly wait to see what you're going to do with this new job you've just <laughs> taken on. And I, um, I don't know if there's anything you can share with us about what you're planning with that, but. Uh, um, I, I, well, our process is one of consultation and we've got, uh, we've got people um, that are joining us that are um, really knowledgeable about the subject and really care about the subject and that care enough to go out and look for um, the right answers to this. What is, what is the best way to do this? We know it's a very serious problem and we, we know the people that you can touch base with and, and um, engage in these consultations and provide the, um, the proposed remedies to the minister for implementation. Um, they're, they're all over the world. In, in many cases, there's uh, commissions that do this work in the United Kingdom, in New Zealand, and uh, North Carolina, um, in the United States, uh, Australia. They, they all have them. So there's experience out there we can learn from. And uh, that's, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna see if we can teach ourselves. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I can hardly wait to learn more about what you're going to do as soon as you're able to make it public. And if there is anything at all that I can do to assist, you know, I'm, uh, I'm here and ready and willing to support and amplify and work on these issues. So thank, thank you, you so, 
thank you so very much for joining us. Is there anything else you wanted to add before? No, we... I just wanted you to know that you're, um, you're on speed dial, so you can rest, <laughs> rest assured you'll hear from me. Excellent. Okay. I, I look forward to that. And thank you once again for all your work, uh, not just now that you're doing, but of course, this lifetime of work you've done and all the incredible ways that you have um, benefited the lives of so many people um, throughout this country and uh, internationally. So uh, thank you, thank you for much, joining Jane. us. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.